Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So today we're going to be talking about a book called Meet Me in the Bathroom, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2001 to 2011. And it's by Lizzie Goodman, great rock writer who's uh, done some stuff from Rolling Stone over the years. And we have Lizzie right here in the studio. Hey, Lizzie. Hey, Brian. So I know in some sense it's a story about New York City, but... Even more so, what is it a story about for you? Well, I mean, I think the mantra I told myself while I was working on it, and I actually had a little note card that was on my stalker wall that I had to create in order to build this thing, said, New York is your primary character. Um, So I think, yes, like the story is about New York and the city. And when we say that, I guess we mean like the geographical place. But I think for me... I don't know if this is a a dodge of your question exactly, but it's about Mm -hmm. New York in the way we usually mean it and also New York as a kind of stand-in for, I mean, Gotham, the kind of the the eternal urban uh, freedom playground space for young people who want to, or old people, but people who want to kind of reinvent themselves. The sense of this kind of American, distinctly American metropolis where possibility and danger and sexuality and rebellion and all those things are kind of like um, in the water. Um, And you know you're going to meet others who have been drawn to it for that reason. And cocaine, specifically cocaine. <laughs> well, in this era, for sure, and some others, too, yes. Have, have, did you ever do a, a find on how many mentions of cocaine oh specifically A word search? Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, but like I will. I'll get on that for you. We can tweet it out to your listeners. It, it has to be over 100. <laughs> it's it must sure. be, yes. I'm sure. It was the drug of the era, I guess. I like what um, Alex from Franz Ferdinand says, like, cocaine? Who could afford cocaine? Oh, my God. Isn't that the best? Which gets me to a point, which I, I think is a critique you've, you've faced and addressed, which is, in some sense, this is a story of privilege sure. these are many of these people are rich 99% of them are really really good looking except James Murphy who you gave like three pages of people talking about how he wasn't quite good looking enough um, so it, it's it is a, it is a story of privilege but I guess of course it is right but like can't we have stories of privilege sometimes those are fun to hear about yeah I mean I think right right I mean what's so wrong with privilege no I think you know it's so funny when you you know this better than everybody basically that when you when you have to kind of when you're working on a story you're doing it from the ground floor up you have to go in trusting obviously I chose to write this but you're go once you've done that you're going in kind of with a sense of um, being in favor on some basic level of the fact that the story is it exists and is worth telling. So you're you're not on the sides of the people that you're reporting on necessarily, but you are kind of like you have decided in choosing to do it that it's worth talking about in the first place. And then it gets done and then there's this sort of 30,000 foot view about it where it's sort of like what are all these like privileged white people doing talking about this shit? And I I I am very sort of sympathetic to that. Um, switch. I've been on both sides of those perspectives. And I think, so I certainly don't stand by the idea that like privilege is amazing. We should only tell privileged stories. But I think the way that I thought about it when I was working on it was I was kind of blissfully not naive, but like not paying attention to that piece in the, at least at the very beginning, because it was sort of like, this is what happened. These are the bands like it or not. Like if you just take an objective view of uh, a relatively objective view on who was popular, what people, what kids at 22 wanted to be listening to in New York City and in London and in uh, Sydney and in Chicago and in these in in these sort of New York stand-in type cities during this period of time. This was 
a big part of what people were listening to. So then you then it's your job to go in and kind of analyze some of the social politics of people hating on certain bands <laughs> because of their privilege or perceived privilege. But it's not like an inherently dismissing, disqualifying initial thing, you know? Well, I think it all works into a narrative. And a nice thing about an oral history is you're not really... I mean, you definitely are. You're telling the story. You're placing a lot of values onto the way you tell the story, but it also leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And I think one of the ways to look at it is a lot of these bands and acts foiled themselves. And sometimes because they were trapped in their own privilege or whatever. And, and I think, well, just one example of just people being really annoying was the um, <laughs> the members of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs got their huge major label advance. And their manager was like, here's your checks. And it's like, I don't even know, maybe it was like $150,000 each or something, but it seemed like it from his description. And they're like, thanks, hey, here's the new song we, we recorded. And he was like, he literally was like, you motherfuckers, awesome. I just killed myself to get you six-figure checks from a record label. This would be, so that, that like made me a little nauseous, I have to say. I think it was funny, though. It is fun. Well, but see, part of, exact. I mean, your point <laughs> is like, put that in the book for sure, right? right? Like, let people see the, the real real life kind of sounds and sights of these themes playing out in a way that isn't like a kind of high concept essay piece on the notion of privilege and rock and roll like this is that's who that's that was the position they were in i mean also right. by the way yeah yeah's are literally my favorite band of this entire era and totally. made some of the most incredible music of our generation and our total punks in spirit and in practice in a lot of ways and I think but yes these issues of like I mean this this also I also find the whole privilege conversation funny too because it's like I feel honored that the, it's almost gratifying to me because one that the book and this era is getting that treatment because every great era of rock and roll has this argument it's like oh my god Mick Jagger went to the London School sure. of Economics so he's not a real rock star this this notion of or I mean the clash like there's a lot of um icons of the spirit of theoretical working class rock and roll who come from positions of privilege and so that debate has been going on that debate basically only starts when there's a mutually agreed upon notion that the era or the artist that we're talking about is like important enough to give a shit about whether we care that they're privileged so I'm sort of like awesome like because one of the things I was concerned about or I heard a lot especially from the artists in the book when I first started working on it was like is anyone even going to care? Is this even like a thing that people... Care? There's a lot of insecurity about whether this scene, so to speak, is uh, ranks in the canon of great rock scenes. And so to me, it's sort of like awesome. I'm psyched that we're talking about whether these people are like privileged assholes because it means a victory of some kind has been won. Right. Let's posit that they are. No, <laughs> no but uh, I think one of, the, one of the themes that comes up is this sort of self-sabotaging. Oh, uh, yes. and... Probably my favorite story because it's something I experienced is there was this band called The Rapture. Yes. Um, the Rapture had this song that was so good. It's called House of Jealous Lovers. And it felt a little bit like a glimpse of the future, and it was because it was basically a glimpse of LCD sound system. <laughs> uh, it sounds exactly like LCD sound system. James Murphy, one of the producers, would start his own band a couple years later, and it turns out he was the sound, not the band. Let's hear it. Amazing sort of like punk disco song like insane still sounds completely fresh. Yeah, so everyone's like this is the greatest new band in the world <laughs> They're going to make an album that is going to like destroy the universe every major label want to sign them Then it turned out even after reading your book. It's not exactly 
clear what happened, but yes. they had no songs that were even remotely like that. No one can even name another song by them. And they just fizzled into nothing. They signed a big deal, and but had nothing to give the label. And then the album kept getting delayed, and eventually it came out, and no one cared or listened to it. And it's, in a way, I feel like that was a little preview to a certain extent of a scene that, while reaching the world and changing the world kept fizzling in weird ways. I think that's true. And also, obviously, if the rapture was this sort of representative story of this book wouldn't exist, right? No, it's like, an no, extreme, no, it's it's an an extreme, extreme version. But yeah. yeah, and I think I think one of the important points, especially if we're using that as a metaphor to note about what happened with the rapture, is the delay of the release of Echoes. I think one of the most important elements for this world even more than any other scene is timing because of the internet. So, and, and because of the internet is the most annoying thing to say ever. It's like a sentence that <laughs> even as I hear a phrase that has become such a part of every point that I make about this book and in general that I am like nauseated by myself, that having been said, it is almost always because of the internet that something is different from the way we are used to or that something happened in a particular way. So like Rob Sheffield, your colleague and, you know, rock historian extraordinaire says in the book that, you know, it was like he talked talks about the just the waiting the the entire Lower East Side and East Village uh, wasn't even Brooklyn yet just sitting there going like where is this record and it sort of like it just came out too late that it really was like a missed moment I would say that I think our opinion of it or its ability to launch itself into something else it wasn't I do not think that that album was in it's not the Jonathan Fire Eater situation where it's like the record comes out and you're like this is not good and like mm-hmm. not gonna work for the whole situation I mean, Echoes took forever to come out. And the reason Echoes took forever to come out was because DFA and the Rapture's new label were fighting about... I mean, DFA wanted... It's all covered in the book. DFA being James Murphy's... James uh, Murphy's label. They were supposed to go. They had a deal. Like, basically, the Rapture was James Murphy's plan for sort of global rock takeover. And they were arranging... Uh, a deal for them and then there was a, a big you know bromance breakup and that took a long that took long enough to resolve that by the time Echoes came out everyone was like eh so the band at the center of this book and it could have been its own book is The Strokes uh-huh. you know and their story is an amazing story because it's, it's both a story of success and in some sense failure I think people have been emphasizing the failure. I think you emphasize the success. And I think among the strongest points that people make is like, listen, they invented the sort of like international hipster style. They they changed the way everyone's jeans fit. Like they changed, you know, it's like, (laughs) like emo emo was just a sort of like more insanely skinny jean takeoff of of really what the strokes were doing. More eyeliner, a few more like spiky hair pieces, but basically a kind of mall. I call, I, I thought of emo as the hot topic incarnation of you know the strokes rock like being from the suburbs like hot topic is where we would always go in the mall to like buy doc martens and posters of whatever band we were supposed to like and it's like emo was an entire genre to me that was an out that was a sort of response to to mall kids like us new mexicans version of what the strokes were i mean i think this is also First of all, yes, it could have been its own book and probably should be like it's important. It was important. I keep saying this, but I'll say it here again. Like it, this is not a book about any one of these bands. It's not definitive in general about the era. You could have told this story a bunch of different ways. There are a lot of bands that aren't in here that sort of you can make a strong case for them that they should have been and 
all kinds of different ways the book could have been done. And also, this is not the definitive stroke story. It's not the definitive LCD sound system story. Like, it's, I mean, you're, you're shaking your head. But I, I'm saying that for in terms of the way I conceived of it, yeah, that was not the goal. It wasn't because, to your point, like, if you tell the whole stroke story, you really have to tell, like, I basically talk about their rise and then fast forward a bit and talk about other people's rises and then it's like you return to them to find out what's going wrong but there is a whole swath of sort of stuff in between that is it isn't really covered it's basically the first two records and then drugs (laughs) Um, (laughs) that that's basically a lot of you just encapsulated like every rock and roll story the first two records and then drugs (laughs) and drugs but Uh, yeah i think i mean to answer sort of your question i think um I think they are at the center of the book. And as Nick Valenci himself sort of says in the book, I love this. He's like, you know, you don't want to be the first animal in the pack, right? Like you want to, the first animal in the pack is the one that gets eaten first. And they were first. And there's a lot of glory that comes with that. You get to invent the type of pants that your entire generation and several below you will be wearing for 20 20- freaking years among other things you probably get to make a lot of money you get to be uh you know sort of you get to be heralded as this kind of paragon of cool because you invent and or recreate or become the touchstone the first touchstones for touchstone for people's connection to this idea that then takes over but you're also the first to get shit on the first to get blamed the first to get to get said you aren't successful enough or you're too successful. I mean, those criticisms are equally leveraged against them all the time. So one of the things that's really interesting about the book is the, the way you get into the stuff that's sort of on the periphery of the music, the undercurrents that were helping push these bands up or down. And and in the case of the strokes, like I never really thought about it. They're all over six feet tall. (laughs) They're all, I'll connect this to something else, which is I, I had a the, the dumbest revelation when I can't remember if it's Stephen Tower talking to me or or if I read it. That that's what happens. But <laughs> but basically, like <laughs> totally. the idea that when they were looking for members, they chose Joe Perry in part because he's really good looking. And you're like, oh wait, it doesn't happen by accident. Yeah. Like you know, it, it's part of the thing. You know, and so the idea that the Strokes were sort of walking around like the monkeys downtown, looking like a band, being like all cute guys, and just like sort of having this energy around them, that's a big part of why they like became the Strokes. Well, you know? yeah, so. and I think it's exactly, and I think people, <laughs> that's not a dumb revelation. I love that. I think, <laughs> I think again, this sort of idea of where, I'm very interested in where things begin. Like the thing, I mean, I guess any writer is, but before you know, we all are sitting here going, oh my God, we know that this band made, is this it? And people thought they were sexy and girls wanted to sleep with them. And it was like, there's a sense after someone is successful, whether this is in acting or, you know, in any form whatsoever, that that's a foregone conclusion, that success is a foregone conclusion because it seems so obvious. But the machinations of how that happens, even for the most seemingly obvious, I mean, look, if you go and write about actors in the Hollywood world, I mean, this is like literally being discussed in boardrooms we need to position that just the marketing of sort of identity is such a is such an art in that world and so sort of cynically rendered in that world you forget that that's like a part of human nature for everybody so the strokes when they met each other they were like middle school kids i mean in the case of julian and nikolai they were in elementary school and they were just there were a lot of pretty uh you know young kind of pouty a little old before their time holding Caulfield types as Jim Merlis says in the book running around New York City wanting to play guitar together these were there was in other words what I'm saying in a very long-winded way is like they did not know they were going to be the strokes they were 
looking like all bands are at the beginning for like-minded people and feeling insecure on some level about who else might do it instead or who else. I mean, you know, so this idea that it's like, fuck those guys. Cause like, obviously they got to be them. It's like, that's certainly not how it felt when you actually are them even. And that brings you to the idea of wanting to, as Albert talks about, which is what you're referencing, wanting to be a gang, like wanting to find your, your brethren to kind of help you boost yourself up in this city that's competitive and filled with other bands who are going to try and sabotage you if they can and filled with other bands who are going to try and sleep with your girlfriend (laughs) like for sure you know they don't know they're going to get to play Saturday Night Live before they play Saturday Night Live I've read so much about Julian I've talked to him I still don't get him (laughs) no yeah me too no I've known Julian since I was 20 and I do not I cannot say that Julian sorry being the lead singer of Catswalkers being the lead singer of the Strokes yes he is the lead singer of the strokes um no julian is a total sphinx like i have a sense of him now and i obviously having reported the book also i've heard a lot of other people who know him better talk about him as i'm sure have you and i think uh, some of the core things about julian are he's real that make him hard for reporters to read is he's incredibly loyal and he's incredibly guarded and that's a tough like blend of qualities for anyone who's trying to get someone to say something to them that's true he also was and this is another classic thing with bands is he was writing all the music he was writing all the music and there was such a tension around that it's not a it's not a theme you dwell on particularly but it was a huge problem in the band or became a huge problem because people thought they were like this democracy and it was really it was Julian well that's a good example of the kind of thing you would investigate more if you were writing a strokes book like why you know the actual sort of way in which songs get written and who's doing solo projects and who's that pissing off and like why is that happening and what was the did they really believe they were democracy in the beginning like I mean, yeah, the the that would require more sort of in-depth reporting, but I think that is a classic story. I mean, the end of the day, I think those guys, there's been back and forth about this, but like Julian is a visionary musically and this was his band was and is his band and sort of being in the band with him any band with him um including his other stuff involves james murphy talks about this a lot i think they're similar in this way although i don't i certainly didn't get julian to say this but i i sense it you know james is like i'm in charge you know and i don't know if this i do not know genuinely if all the strokes guys what the dynamic is with that band right now or or in the past necessarily but (laughs) not not great right now from what i understand yeah i mean but in other words i don't know if that's the deal sure but i know that that's his nature i mean that's all in the book where he's talking about like you know like when gordon Raphael is talking about like the level of just the the 15 hours that julian would want to spend on like a hi-hat sound and that kind of stuff that's very murphy-esque there's a great part in the book where james talks about having heard his own uh, sort of rehearsal tape from when he was like in middle school and how he was telling this is all where people are talking about how difficult he can be in the studio and he talks about listening back James Murphy of LCD Sound System talks about listening back to a recording of his own band's rehearsal when he was in Princeton and and like 14 or something and he's already like stressed that it's not good and that he, and everyone else is like that was awesome man like we're just you know hang, having fun and he's like yeah it's fun can we do it again yeah it's so we're having so much fun like he's like it was already there that thing of just like no it's not it's actually not fun like this is wrong and I have to fix it and I think that perfectionism is certainly a Julian Casablanca's quality as well
why did the Strokes do so many drugs, Lizzie? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, why do people do so many drugs, right? Like in general in the book, they're certainly the strokes are not alone in their drug taking. I think in each person's case in that band, it's a different reason that they individually get into. Uh, One of the parts I really wanted to report out and I'm happy to have in there is kind of what high school was like for those guys when they met each other. They Mm. were... You know, New York City boys drinking in, you know, supply closets in high school. Like that notion of of being an urban kid was them. So one answer is addiction because they started young. You know, Um, in the case of Albert, he talks incredibly poignantly in the book about a lot of things. But one of them is his desire to do heroin from an early age and sort of his plan to do that growing up in L.A. That was like on his mind. And I think so addiction is a disease and one that certainly doesn't obviously doesn't just affect musicians but it does affect a lot of musicians and artists in general and like that's a part of this like that's a backstory to why people are doing drugs so it's worth saying that even though it sounds kind of square and PSAE but um no oh, yeah I think that's part of it I think in other cases like one part in the book Nick Valencia the guitarist in the strokes or one of them talks about kind of the rise and how all this stuff is happening like you're getting a call every day that's like a new what like this is where we're doing what we're doing this he's like it's kind of he says something sort of very dry which is Nick like you know it's kind of a lot to handle you really basically can't take it in uh, at that point and uh my solution was just to do a lot of drugs you know yeah. there's so so there's that but I think a third answer which is probably not as specific to them as it is general to the bands like Interpol yeah he has all these different artists is there is a side of drugs that has to do with kind of getting to the right frequency of the city. Karen O talks about coming to shout to the the Bar 13 sort of mod dance party or garage rock dance party and practicing the persona of Karen O by drinking 13 Cosmopolitans and doing knee slides on the dance floor. And like there's a sense of the lubrication that comes with inebriation, which is an awkward rhyme that I have now put down on wow yeah that's bad we're gonna just my my, if my editor brian hyatt were here he could help me out with that but um i do think that that's important paul banks singer of interpol says in the book that he always felt when he was doing parting a lot that he was on safari in some way and i think that is the ben that is the side of this that's valuable you come to this city and this is the theme of the book to figure out how to become something that is almost an instinct rather than than a person you can name but who but is also yourself and you're trying to find that person and sometimes you have to use mind-altering substances to locate them so i do think that drugs have value in this limited way but that they always end you know it it does not a story that ends well usually i also wonder with it for the strokes as much as because i was talking with someone about how the other day about how guns and roses um as much as people now think of them as an archetypal rock band were actually even that early were themselves playing and adopting rock and roll archetypes that existed. They were being Aerosmith, they were being the Stones, and part of Mm. sort of the cosplay of the rock and roll star kit comes with like doing a lot of drugs. And I I do have to wonder for the Strokes who seemed so deeply invested in in the archetypes if they just thought it sort of is what you do, you know? I mean, I think I think Albert is a good example of that, right? Like when he talks about his desire to take drugs, he taught, I mean, it's so literal. I love him. He's like, yeah, I said, I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he's basically like, yeah, I knew I wanted to do heroin, but I also knew I couldn't yet. 
because I hadn't made something cool enough. And it's like when you're six, when you've made it, and I think that fits in with what you're saying where there's sort of this idea of like my rock star pose, I can't embody and pose is not a word that I mean in a derogatory way. It's like embodying this archetype, this, this aspiration to rock stardom, the posture of that in the best sense, which is, you know why Dylan changed his name you know so it's like not like a bad thing to do it's a myth making is a thing all artists are doing Um, but he knew the timing's not right like it's off for my narrative like I'm it's gonna it's gonna fuck me up too much that is one of the parts where you want to reach into the book and slap him (laughs) but yes Yes. but so we talked about the strokes success which was substantial and and in in some ways continuing Mm -hmm. there's also the failure side Mm -hmm. and the failure side we were talking during the break sort of began on the second album room on fire because they made a classic debut um that had a very distinct sound i think one of the guys from interpol says in your book that it it sounds like it was it sounds like it was recorded in someone's butthole or something which is (laughs) which is like deeply accurate i think he also said it sounded like it was recorded the bleed out of a rehearsal space that they just set out a recorder outside the rehearsal space and record i mean they had his julian's mic was going through a little pv guitar amp and then they mic the pv guitar amp that's that's i mean that's cool but on every song basically (laughs) and that's cool on the first album because it's a, a cool that's how a debut rock and roll album should probably sound like super grimy and gritty it's awesome but then the second album and they knew Mm -hmm. that it shouldn't be like that because they got they tried to get Nigel Nigel Godrich who I mean of of many forms of fame but Radiohead among them um, which is a lusher richer and Radiohead being a band that navigated that transition pretty successfully from like dirty garage sounding like kids in a in a basement vibe to being Radiohead. Um, this is what I've always said about this. If the third record came out second, if um, First Impressions of Earth came out second, the weird experimental, like fully not garagey at all. Because like now we know from what Julian has done in his in his side projects, like he has that. I mean, this sort of like knob twiddling, like intricate, like electro sort of um soul thing is really in his wheelhouse in terms of something that appeals to him right and if i think first impressions of earth is a much more experimental a much a much smoother a much more sort of um technically sophisticated album at least in the production if that album had come out second ever this is i think that part of this is just marketing everyone have been like oh my god we hate this record where's the dirty sex drugs and rock and roll this band has gone like they've gotten sort of too big for their britches and they've gone and experimented and they've gotten weird and then if they came out with room on fire third even with the production as it is it would have been heralded as a total return to form (laughs) and to the thing that we loved them for in the first place and blood going to the right places and sex drugs and rock and roll and like all that stuff so i think it's I mean, the production to me is not the problem. It's partially the thing we were talking about earlier, which is the order of operations of these records. And the other fact is that it's context pop culturally. So like by the time Room on Fire is coming out, the Killers and the Kings of Leon are already like around and doing this thing, this rock thing in a way that sounds radio friendly in uh, times uh, on a level that none of the strokes at least early the stuff you're talking about distinctly didn't intentionally didn't but so there's that comparison already there with their immediate disciples like immediate disciples are playing you know shiny versions of those songs on the radio yeah i mean somebody told me 
by the by the killers. It's it's interesting to listen to that. It's also weird. I mean, for me, the killers <laughs> are another weird example. They're not from New York, but the, like first album so good and I then know. like I don't know like so it, it, it's, it's some, something <laughs> really I don't know it's really really weird it is true I mean the, the Killers Franz Ferdinand Interpol let's hear somebody told me we, we all know what it sounds like but let's hear it <laughs> breaking my back just to know your name 17 so that song is, all I'm thinking is fire emojis, although we didn't have those back then. I mean, it's so good. It's so tight. It's like well-produced. It sounds good on the radio. It's not completely out of the idiom of what the Strokes were doing. And one of my favorite parts of the book, actually, is Julian just flat out admitting he heard that on the radio. And he's like, shit. So let's hear Reptilia from that second Strokes album and just compare. He seemed impressed by the way So I think the ride symbol was like a tin can or something. I'm not sure what the hell. <laughs> it's, 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 it's I think great. it sounds so good. It's so I great. Mean, no, I love it. I love it. But it's just, it. I loved it on the first album. I don't think they should have done exactly the same thing. I don't, I don't think they did. I mean, yeah. I'm going to push back on yeah. that a little bit. I yeah. think that the, I know what you mean. You're talking yeah. basically, like you're rock nerding out on yes. us. You're talking specifically about the production on Room I, on Fire. I, I, am. And, I think the songs were great, but needed But the songs to, yeah. are evolved yeah. from that's what- That's true. And so that was, that's the point I'm going to make is like songwriting wise, like I, if you hear Reptilia or even 12th, I mean, there's other, the singles on that song, Under Control is on that album. It's, there's a clear evolution in the sophistication and the kind of like heft of the songwriting. These aren't like tight, you know, guitar, three, three and a half minute guitar songs in the same way that a lot of what was on Is This It that makes Is This It great and classic are. So I think maybe that's part of your frustration too is that, uh, but I would just say that in the context of your frustration to also point out that the songs could handle the production you're describing in a way that I'm not sure that Is This It tracks could have. Well, it's funny. The narrative was, especially like in the 90s and even the late 80s, is I, I would say R.E.M. is a great example. It's like you go up from the, you know, start in the underground, critically acclaimed, and you like you make it all the way up. And, and then even, honestly, like a Springsteen in the 70s, yeah. although he was never on an indie, is the same kind of thing. Critical favorite, but then you kind of, you climb your way up, great live shows, and you make increasingly, you know, commercial albums without compromising yourself, and then, boom, you, you, you go to the stadiums. You and know? the band that did that here that uh, we haven't even talked about, really, because they weren't influenced by the Strokes in the same way that... I mean, the Killers and the Kings of Leon literally both say, in the book and many other times... Oh, we saw them do what they did, and then we were like, "Great, we're gonna do that too," because we're already kind of doing that. But now we have permission to yes. like own it. You know, I mean, it's it's as direct as it gets. But the band that's a contemporary of the Strokes that like really did what you're describing, the old model is the White Stripes. Like, yeah, it's three. And I I would say I know I'm I, my book is written this way too. But this and this is how all my journalism is. I I hate to take it out of the realm of like the actual making of the art and and sort of armchair sh- shrink everything but I think it has to do with psychology and and sort of a sense of identity about what being in a band even is in the first place and also so what I mean by that is that the strokes whether you believe this or not I don't mean you personally but like whether people believe this or not like really did think of themselves as wanting to be guided by voices they loved Lou Reed and they loved Nirvana and they loved guided by voices and they were hoping to get to like tour you know 
good sized theaters in American cities for the rest of their lives. But then one member, hilariously, it's one of the great moments of contradiction in the book. Uh, so one member is saying like what you're saying, but yeah. then one member is like, bullshit, we were very ambitious. I think it's, I think yeah. it's fab, but it might yeah. not be fab. Yes. And I think th- I'm sure that once the gun went off, there was inner band conversations about whether that notion of where we could actually be should be expanded, given the fact that everyone is freaking out over our stuff. I'm not saying that that continued in terms of that. I wouldn't even call it lack of ambition, but felt fairly um, traditional indie rock and roll mindset about these things. And then the other person who subscribes to that and their pals is Karen O. Like, I think there really is with the Strokes and certainly with Julian, at least, and with someone like Karen, and she talks about this a lot, a kind of uncertainty and maybe even wariness about what what about how much you want to go for it. Mark Spitz talks about this in the book about when the Strokes were on the were band of the year at Spin. I think it's even Nick Valenti, who's who has a lot of swagger, shall we say, says to Mark, like, White Stripes should be band of the year. And Mark's sort of like, yeah, they didn't even want to own it. Whereas you would never catch Brandon Flowers saying that. And you wouldn't catch Jack White saying that. Um, and the other advantage, just one more quick point about that, is that Jack White and the White Stripes had two albums under their belt by the time anyone cared and the Strokes had like three songs that blew up in England before they even recorded their first record and the just time delay of that in terms of being 20 versus even 25 and the emotional resonance of a period of time spent making music and no one cares which basically the Strokes didn't have certainly on the level of a Jack White like record after record coming out like that makes you want things when it, you know the difference between how it feels to put an album out and have nobody fucking care and how it feels to put an album, album out and have three countries care, you know? Unfortunately, the Strokes eventually found out what it was like <laughs> to do that. I want to touch quickly on Karen O. Oh, we have a lot to get through in the next like seven minutes. But <laughs> my favorite bit about Karen O. Oh is she went to Debbie Harry. She happened to see her at a, at a party, which it just feels it, it's too much. It's like a scene in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And she goes to Debbie Harry and she asked her for some advice. Yeah, she's like, I just feel like such a girl in a boy's world. Like, how do I... I handle that and uh I think extra context for that Karen was she talks about how she was like hung up on some like totally kind of douchey guy that she was you know obsessed with at that time um so it was a perfect it's exactly like the movie sad about a boy in a bar I think it was at the cooler even which is like an old club on in the meatpacking district so like I mean really there's like I don't know an intermix there now or something but um and Debbie just sort of says like honey enjoy it while it lasts you know and uh (laughs) Karen recalls feeling at the time sort of wounded by that like what kind of advice is you know really that's your advice to me and sort of now is like yeah that's right like Karen's role in this story is among the most interesting to me and I I don't think that's only because I'm a woman and she's a woman but I do think that I have I mean I think for obvious reasons there's a sort of sense of where do young, where do girls get to be in this story and Karen is uh, one of the representatives in the band space for how that looked and I think you know it can be really lonely and it was really lonely for her in mm. a lot of ways and um, certainly Debbie Harry would understand that but I think what Karen means by that if I may is something that I can certainly relate to in my own career trajectory which is sort of like yeah all those feelings are real etc cetera, etc cetera, but like you're also still pretty lucky to be here and mm. like this is actually fun and this is kind of what you want and just you're not going to fix <laughs> the loneliness tonight so enjoy it well <laughs> you know it's not a disavowal of the fact that that's a problem that there's there's sadness in general in success and also that it's hard to be the only girl um it's not like that's not a big deal but it's sort of like that's still the best advice 
Um, so I stand by it. So the whole Ryan Adams strokes thing has become a thing. Is there a thing between <laughs> Ryan and the strokes? So th- there's an accusation basically that Ryan supposedly got Albert Hammond Jr. into heroin. Right. I mean, like that's how it's been played, but I don't even think that's what the book says. I think the what the book says is that Ryan's what people in the book say is that Ryan's influence on Albert's use of heroin, which existed without Ryan, was was in, was uh, in the plus column as opposed to the negative column in terms of like he was the idea was he was a bad influence. That's what said, not right. that he like literally was like this sort of uh, under the bleachers pusher going, "Hey, Albert, come on over here and let's do." some heroin together like it's it, Albert was already into it, it. seems faintly preposterous that they're also they seemed weirdly threatened by Ryan Adams in particular mm-hmm. I mean in the backstory mm-hmm. is that their manager briefly managed Ryan Adams until they're like you need to stop managing Ryan Adams <laughs> yes they seem uniquely bothered oh by Ryan Adams <laughs> I think that's interesting the, the idea of threat I think it goes you know I was saying earlier that Julian is very loyal and also very guarded I think that's part of it like the the strokes the strokes are not one organism. They're one organism with five guys in it. And then a sixth stroke, which is Ryan Gentles, their manager at the time, who is also managing Ryan Adams for a period of time with the permission of the band until it was like, no, not anymore, um, which they always had in their contract. Like you, th- he had managed other people too. He managed Adam Green, et cetera, et cetera. There was other artists around. <laughs> Such an um, insult to Adam Green that they never were like, stop at managing Adam <laughs> Green. But yes, anyway, go on. I think Adam had his life together a little bit more. Although if you see his movies, you're like, wait a minute, was that a good? But I mean, he's awesome too. But basically I think there this sense what i'm getting at is that the idea of this being a gang and it being like a fairly intimate family and like we don't really do interlopers like is both 100 percent true and not in that, that basically it's like if you were in their family if you were the moldy peaches if you were like some of the kids that were hanging out with those guys when uh, when you were younger like you were in for life kind of but these new sort of recruits to the fold of of east village culture in the post strokes era like there were a lot of people around wanting to like hang out i would see i would go into 2a and there would be these little girls just sort of like <gasps> are they going to be here tonight there was like a lot of attention on just the rhythms of where the strokes would hang out and people wanting to to get in on that and I think you're right maybe that the Ryan Adams that he represented on some level us I know he did to other people um, not in the strokes a sense of like the 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 sort of musical and famous person incarnation of that thing that kind of carpet bagging like we're gonna show up here and hang out at all the same bars and kind of borrow your lifestyle sort of thing so that's for sure true um, but I think the guys in the band were definitely like you know, they wanted Ryan Gentle's full attention. And also they felt like, I mean, Ryan Adams was a severe drug addict. He told the New York Times about doing speedballs. Like he was not, and Albert was, as he says to many people, including me in the book, really going down a dark path. Like on a basic level, it's like, yeah, is that the best plan for all these people to be yeah, hanging out? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think there was a sense maybe of, you know, Ryan Adams did cover Is This It in full during that period of time. <laughs> Good point, yeah. <laughs> So there was that to note. The strokes really were the original Taylor Swift in that sense. Oh yeah, my God, that, amazing. Yeah, he, he tends to, I mean, he, he, he is a man of his times. Whatever the times are, he will take on the times and cover those times. Quote of the day from Brian Hyatt. That's right. So parting thoughts. What, what do you want people to take away from the book in, in 30 seconds or less? <laughs> Uh, fun. I mean, not to quote Debbie Harry, but enjoy it while it lasts. Like the goal was to have this feel like, um, an immersive experience for better or for worse that you would get a sense of what it felt like to be there then. And that's what I want 
that's what I want to have succeeded in achieving. It's a great book. I truly recommend it. It's 500 pages long and it feels much shorter. That's a nice thing about oral history and a a well-assembled oral history. So that's Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman. Lizzie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We will be back next week at 1 p.m. here on Sirius XM 106 volume. And in the meantime, download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a good review on iTunes if you get a chance. And we will see you next week. Next week.